All right, this is Gary Parrish again from CBSSports.com. Again, it's now uh, Monday, January 19th, and this is, of course, the Island College Basketball Podcast brought to you by Squarespace, which recently launched a version of its platform called Squarespace 7, which has a completely redesigned interface, integrations with Getty Images and Google Apps, 15 new templates, and a feature called Cover Pages. You want to try it? Go to Squarespace.com and enter the offer code FUN at checkout to get 10% off that Squarespace. Start here. Go anywhere. I'm joined uh, for this episode by college basketball analyst Sean Farno, who works for ESPN, of course. He's called games um, in basically every conference at one point or another. And this season, he's ESPN's primary analyst on the SEC. In fact, uh, he's in Gainesville right now for Tuesday's game between LSU and Florida. So let's start right there. Sean, uh, can you make sense of Billy Donovan having a 10-7 and basketball team right now? I can, and I think that the reason why he can is because the only thing that's been consistent this year about this team has been the inconsistency of it. Yeah. Uh, and that's, that starts from the beginning of the season with Chris Walker's suspension, and then Dorian Finney-Smith uh, fractures his hand in a game against William and & Mary. And although he didn't miss a lot of time from that only two games, um, he had difficulty rebounding and catching the ball for a good portion of the non-conference. Carter goes down with an ankle injury. He misses substantial time. Then Alex Murphy becomes eligible, and then you suspend Horford. So it's it's been interchangeable parts throughout the course of the season, and really there's a couple of things that this team lacks that really stands out to me. One is it lacks leadership. You know, we talked about 58% of their scoring going from a year ago, 51% of their total rebounding, but at the end of the day, they also lost a great, lost a great deal of leadership. They didn't just lose the SEC Player of the Year, SEC Defensive Player of the Year. They lost the experience of being seniors the experience of knowing what it takes to be a great leader. And I think part of that is why we've seen Michael Frazier maybe take a step back, where now that he's coming off the bench, is because not that he's a bad person, not that he's a bad teammate, um, but I, I don't think he's – I think he's trying to lead so much that he's no longer focusing on what made Michael Frazier so good a season ago. And so when you start having all of these things kind of stack up one after another and you lack a true back-to-the-basket strong post presence that you can dump the ball down to, I think that, that, that's a good reason why Florida's struggling a little bit. You mentioned uh, Chris Walker, who is um, interesting on a couple of different levels. A, because he was a heralded high school recruit who enrolled late for academics. But B, because he's always been projected as, you know, some future lottery pick and you know maybe a one-and-done guy. Now, obviously, we knew he wasn't one-and-done after last season. But the thought, or at least the hope among uh, folks in Gainesville, was that he'd return to school and then have that that breakthrough season and then be able to turn pro after this year. And it, it just hasn't happened. I mean, he's just okay at best. I mean, um, what what do you make of this Chris Walker situation? And how much of it is, you know, with, with Florida struggling, is basically when you recruit an inside-outside duo like Casey Hill and Chris Walker, for people who don't know, those kids played AAU together. They were both top 20 recruits. When you recruit those kids and you were pre- project them as sophomores on your team, you expect that they're going to be great. And if they're going to be great, you're going to be really good. But when neither of them has lived up to expectations, you know, this is kind of what you get. Yeah, that, you know, and with Chris Walker, I think it's it's over-expectations. Yeah. I think, you know, when you watch a player with his level of athleticism, and he is an outstanding athlete. He can run the floor. He finishes well above the rim. He does a lot of things good in that kind of scenario. Blocking shots at the high school level, that athleticism dominates the court. At the Division One level, it doesn't dominate the court. So what else can you do? Can you post up? Do you have a plethora of back-to-the-basket moves? Do you rebound consistently? And the answer to those questions for Chris Walker is no. He is not a lottery projection at all anymore. I mean, he, he, he's not even 
uh, he'd probably be a fringe NBA player at this point in time, like a person that they maybe think about taking late in the second round because he, he just isn't that good. And sometimes, you know, and, and it falls on us in the media world as far as overhyping or overprojecting talent out of the high school level uh, because we get enamored with those, those traits, the skill set. And I think, you know, I've said this an awful lot this year, is it, it's no longer about getting just the rated player. And obviously Coach Cal and what he's done at Kentucky, he gets the rated player, but he also gets to play as a team, and that's what's made this group special this year in Lexington. But take a look at Virginia. Tony Bennett doesn't go out and just recruit rated players. He goes out and recruits the right player. Right. And the right player is much more important in today's college basketball world than the rated player because if you have a player that can buy in and fit your system and you have a clear understanding of how that player is going to perform once they arrive on campus, that's something that you can plug in and say, I can count on this person every single day. I think when you look at a player like Chris Walker, you can't count on him to do anything. And that's a big problem for Billy Donovan. How much do you think that messes with a kid's head as well when, let's be honest, regardless of what his academic issues were or what kind of student he is, he has always been under the impression, because folks have always told him, really since he's 14, 15 years old, someday you're going to be in the NBA, someday you're going to be worth millions. It doesn't matter that your family might be struggling now, and his 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 personal background is, is uh, uh, I don't know, it's not like my personal background, it's not like your personal background. And so like he's he's always been counted on, on some weird level as, the guy who was going to save everybody, financially speaking. And then to look up, you know, in middle January uh, 2015 and reality hitting you in the face that this stuff ain't happening for you the way everybody told you it was always going to happen for you, that must be a hard thing for a young person to deal with, don't you think? You know what? It's, it's funny you bring that up, Gary, because that's what Billy Donovan told me in October. Wow. And, and, I, and I was out there watching him practice, and he said to me, you know, Sean, uh, you know, the Chris Walker situation. I said, well, what's going on there? And he goes, you know, the most difficult thing is, and I, he goes, I had this conversation with him the other day. I sat him down in my office and said, you know, being suspended, you're doing the right thing right now. You're, you're starting to get yourself back on track. That's good. That's where we want you to be. The next challenge for you is going to be when everybody figures out that you're not as good as they all thought you were. Wow. How will you handle that then? So Billy Donovan has been out in front of that. So it's not like all of a sudden now in January – that Chris is feeling that his coach told him that back in October that this was coming. So it, it's been a process and it's, it, and, and you're right. You know, the financial aspect of it, and he's not the only one on this team, by the way, that has talked about openly about like, well, expectations are that I'm going to be a pro and, and, I, and I've got to become a pro because I've got to get my family out of the situation that they're in. And that's, that's often something that we don't think about when we see a kid, we want to label them selfish or we want to label them just, you know, eager to get to that money. Sometimes it's not just about being eager about getting to that money. It's about what you just said, Gary, that the expectation of the family is if you're going to save not just mom and dad, but brother and sister, aunt and uncle, grandma and grandpa, you're going to change everyone's life because that's what we've been waiting for you to do. Now go do it. And I think a lot of that falls on the shoulders of Chris Walker, and he's dealing with it, and I think he's dealing with it actually pretty well at this point in time. That's interesting. Uh, I, I can't imagine what that'd be like for, you know, it's hard enough regardless of your age when you feel like, you know, other humans are relying on you, and yet to have to deal with it in such a public way at that age must just be, uh, I don't know, I'm sympathetic to that part of this story. Elsewhere in the SEC. Oh, no question. Yeah, 
Yeah, no I, question. Yeah, it, it's just a, it's a, it must be a tough thing for a young person to you know if I'm 19 years old, 20 years old, and I suck at whatever it is I'm doing, whether it's you know classes or my pizza delivery job or anything most 19, 20 year olds do, it's sort of a private issue like people like the world's not talking about it and yet you know here we are and here you will be tomorrow night on television you'll, you'll be addressing the Chris Walker situation I just I'm always sort of when I take a step back a little sympathetic to to what it must be like to be Chris Walker dealing with this right now and, and again who put those expectations on him yeah, yeah some of it some of it comes from his family but a lot of it comes from the, the people that make the evaluations out of high school and are touting this kid at a young age the AAU system in which we worked in uh, with a lot of these young kids, they see the length, they see the talent, they see the athleticism, and everybody starts telling them, hey, you're going to the league, you're going to the league, you're going to the league. There's been a lot of guys over the years that, that people thought coming out of high school were going to go to the league and, and then ended up never making it or never filling on that promise uh, that was seen in them at such a young age. You know, elsewhere in the SEC, um, tied for second in the standings, Donnie Tindall's Tennessee Vols, they've won seven of eight. You surprised by what Donnie has been able to do, especially under this cloud of that NCAA investigation? You know, it truly is remarkable, um, the success level that they've had. And I credit Coach Donnie Tindall because of the fact that of everything that's going on with the, the ongoing NCAA investigation, doing going back to his time at Southern Miss, has nothing to do with what he's done at Tennessee. Um but the thing that stands out most to me is, is the system that he plays. It's a unique system with the matchup zone. They press. He doesn't have any size whatsoever. No. They have no size. They have a very short and limited bench. But what they do is they compete and they do trust each other. And that's one of the things that he's been working on since he's arrived on campus. And I think Josh Richardson deserves a lot of credit in that. Uh, I think he's highly undervalued for the buy-in factor of a new coach an ongoing NCAA investigation, and like, that doesn't matter to us. We're going out on the floor, and we're playing for the next 40 minutes. That's not our problem. He's going to deal with that when he's got to deal with it. We're going to focus on what we're doing right now. And I think that's also the message that the coaching staff has shared with the team. Listen, this is our issue. It's not yours. We're going to coach you up. We're going to put you in the right situation to find success, and hopefully we can go out there and we can surprise some people. And it is a surprise. You can't say that right now in the SEC – Anybody at the beginning of the year, even just looking at this roster for Tennessee, would have expected them to play as well as they have played so far. They've lost one game at home. That Kansas State win is looking better by the day. Sure. Because Kansas State continues to win games inside the Big 12. You know, they knocked off Butler at home. The only loss they have at home is Alabama. They beat Arkansas already. They're playing really good basketball, and their system's going to continue to get them wins. And Donnie Dendel has won everywhere he's gone. And, and, and I think his system is effective because it's different and it's unique. And just your point about the lack of depth uh, up front. I mean, they have no size, like you said. How about this? When they took Dominic Woodson from Memphis, I remember talking to Donnie right after that. And, you know, because of where I live, he was picking my brain about Dom a little bit. And I just said, hey, listen, you know, the kid's been a problem and he's probably going to be a problem for you. And basically Donnie's, you know, you know uh, position was – I, I, I get all that, but like he he'll be the best big I've got right from the start. You know, like I like I just and like I gotta I gotta roll the dice on the kid because I just need somebody and and he'll probably be the best one I got even if I've never actually seen him play. 
And how about this? That kid ain't even on the team anymore. So Donnie Tindall was so desperate for size that he took Dominic Woodson with the understanding that Dominic Woodson would be his best big. And Dominic Woodson's not even on the team anymore. And they're they're still winning at a not not only a, a, a nice level, but at a level, like you said, nobody could have anticipated. And it is just sort of a reminder. I think it's unfortunate. And and, and and I don't mean unfortunate, I mean, because it might be self-inflicted. Like, it's possible Donnie did this to himself. Uh, but I do think it's unfortunate that this NCAA investigation has sort of uh, overshadowed this, I think, undeniable fact, which is that Donnie's a hell of a basketball coach. Like, what he may or may not have done at Southern Miss, I can't get into. But But in terms of just coaching basketball, he's pretty damn good at it, and he's showing that this season. Uh, he, he's very good at it. And watching him at the practices, and, and again, I, I did a tour of driving through a lot of the SEC schools uh, at, right after Midnight Madness, and I went down and spent some time in Knoxville, and I, I've been back there. I've done a game there. I, I saw them down in Orlando. I, you think about it, you, you talk about size. Armani Moore right. is their leading rebounder. He's 6'5", and he's playing power forward position. I mean, he, he should be a shooting guard or at the very least a small forward. But they've got him playing the four and sometimes the five. Right now, so and, and he's six five. So it, it, it's really truly remarkable about how he's able to extract the very best out of his players on a consistent basis, and, and that's what they're doing right now. I mean, they've just done a consistency. Now the question becomes for Tennessee: if they truly are going to be in this era, uh, this area of the top half of the conference, and and maybe even you know, look as crazy as it may sound, to vie for a spot in the NCAA tournament. I mean, nobody would have thought that, uh, certainly uh, in the beginning portion of the year when they lost three out of the first five games. But they've got to be able to perform during this stretch. Now, they just won at Missouri. They've got at South Carolina, Texas A&M, and then they're at Arkansas. They've got to get a split between South Carolina and Arkansas, and they've got to protect their home court in this little three-game stretch right now because then you've got Auburn and Mississippi State at home. And by that time, if you just get that split, you're rolling in SEC play. The back half of their schedule is much more difficult than the front half of their schedule is Bill and Compass play. Before we shift gears, um, one question that has to be asked, otherwise it wouldn't even be a college basketball conversation. Um, is Kentucky going to enter Selection Sunday undefeated? I believe that they will. Yeah, I believe that they will. I, 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 you know, The only way they lose this is, is, is because of a lack of intensity, lack of focus at this point in time, I think, when you look. And that's not a, that's not a reflection, again, on the SEC. That's just on how good Kentucky is. And I think you look at Kentucky and you look at Virginia, what makes them great? It's their defense. Their defenses make them great. Now, two very different styles of play, two very different defenses. Um, but the, the length of Kentucky, the athleticism of Kentucky, and they go back to the true platoon system, and, and it has ignited a fire. Now, does it stay at that? Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. We'll see as time goes on. Um, but I'm a believer that they're going to go 18-0 in, in, in the regular season and, and go into the conference tournament undefeated. I think I'm leaning in that direction uh, myself. So let's switch gears a little bit. Duke used a zone to beat Louisville on Saturday. If you're Mike Krzyzewski, and wouldn't it be cool if you were Mike Krzyzewski, but if you're Mike Krzyzewski, is this something you'd rely on? I'd, I'd be a very wealthy man, and I'd have a couple <laughs> of gold medals, some national championship rings. You know, it'd be a good thing to be coached down. I think, you know what, I've never actually considered it, but uh, th- now, that we're, now that we're thinking out loud, I think I wouldn't mind being Coach K either. And so uh, would you rely on this more often, the zone, given your personnel? I would. I, I think that what, was, what, we're starting, what we were starting to see is teams were really being aggressive and attacking the guards. Yep. And in, in doing so, part of that was bringing Julie Loca for away from the basket, trying to get him 
They have to defend in an on-ball screen situation, and I think it was causing too many defensive breakdowns for Duke, uh, in particular in those two games uh, that they lost. And and I think the zone was good for them. Obviously, it their offense, yeah, they were struggling to shoot, in particular from beyond the arc in the, the two game Blue Juice streak at North Carolina State and then Miami, but. I think it was more about their defense than anything else, and I think that's why you saw the shift to go to the zone. Uh, it's something different. It worked well. I, do I think it's something that he's going to use all the time? No, but I think when he starts to feel his team struggling, he'll go back to it. Yeah, it, it was funny like watching – it was funny listening to Mike talk about it and then listening to the reaction from other people because I was there in Louisville, and I sort of wrote the column, and, and uh, some pushback, and I guess a, a lot of this was just from Kentucky fans, but they were like, of course, oh, Mike Krzyzewski's a genius. He zoned Louisville, and uh, and uh, it, it would you know, – I've never coached basketball, and I know that's what you're supposed to do. But the truth is, I, I think to, to, to hammer that home, which is A, true, by the way, Louisville is the perfect team to zone – uh, particularly if you're Duke, but but to focus on that is to miss the larger point, which is you know my Chelsea's coached like a bazillion games. There's always good opportunities to zone. He does not do it. It does not matter. Like it, it doesn't matter his personnel. It doesn't matter the other team's personnel. This is not something he had ever done to this extent, far as I know, and far as anybody who knows him knows. This is something he had never done to this extent, and so uh, right. yeah, it, it was a, it was. Oh, a, Jerry, it's yeah. like, here's here's what I would say to it. It'd be like it'd be like Bayheim all of a sudden coming out and playing there. <laughs> right, right. You know, so like what? And I understand it's not like it's a novel concept. It's not like Coach K, you know, reinvented the way zones <laughs> are played. Um, but at the same time, when it's out of character, when it's out of right. the system, right. And that's what stands out in making the adjustment, knowing your personnel, knowing what you have to do to be successful, and to try to just change something, just tweak it just ever so slightly. And that's what great coaches do. And Coach K is not the only one in college basketball that does this, um, but obviously he's done it as well as anybody else has. And and to me, that's that's what it's more about. It's not about like, well, like, great, he, he knew that he should play a team. There's a lot of times I've watched coaches and I go, okay, if I was coaching this team, you know, I certainly wouldn't, wouldn't try to run with them. Right. And then the team comes out, but that's their system, and, and they're going to continue to try to run at them because they don't want to change something up because they're afraid of how their players will react to it. Coach K isn't afraid of how his players are going to react to anything. He knows they can handle it, and so therefore he tries to put them in a situation that they can be successful. And I think it was, a, it was the right move. I don't think it's going to be something we're going to see an awful lot of out of this group. I would not expect to see a lot of zone against Pitt. Right. I would imagine they go back to more of a man-to-man as Pitt's kind of struggling right now. But – you know, as they go on throughout the course of the season, you might see that that reemerge now that they know that it can be successful too. Because oh, by the way, if they go out and all of a sudden it's not successful, even though it was the perfect opponent to do it against, but if it was not successful, then everybody's going, well, why would he change the system? Right. You know, at, at this point in time, so everybody would have been critical. So you're going to get criticized either way. I and um. Yeah, I don't know that this is something they're going to do every game, but is it? It was interesting that Mike seemed to suggest. In terms of just being a strategic move, like it is what it is, but also he used it as like a, a, a like he he saw his young guys, his his freshmen, like beaten down a little bit. You got to like I talked to Jalil and Tyus both on Saturday. They were on the verge of a three-game losing streak. Neither of them, because I asked them both could ever remember losing three straight basketball games in their entire lives, ever. And so they were going through something that they had ever, they'd never done, gone through. And 
Right. Um, right. And you he said, listen, I gave him a fresh start almost. It was like, hey, here's something brand new. Like all that stuff, we've been getting killed, but that's over with because we're not even playing the same way anymore. So in terms of a strategy, it was solid, but it was also in terms of a, a way to erase memories. It, it worked on that level as well. So I just thought it was an, a, a fascinating development um, over the weekend. And now people are talking about Duke as a possible national champion uh, again. Meantime, uh, last season's national champion uh, is going through it a little bit. You saw him up close on Saturday. I watched the game. You were on the call. Huskies lost at Stanford. Connecticut's now 9-7 and seven overall. Is this team going to make the NCAA tournament? I don't know. I mean, when Ryan Boatwright told I was, I was shocked with the honesty that Ryan had before the game. And I was sitting with him at Shooter Round. I said, so where's this team at right now, Ryan? And he looks at me and goes, we're teetering. We're teetering between being the team that I think we can be uh, to letting this thing just completely fly away from us. Wow. Now, the thing is, the American Conference isn't very good. Right. Uh, there, there are wins to be had up and down their schedule remaining. So could they get to the win total that you need and the defending national champs? Sure, that can happen. Uh, but the Stanford game was seen as a pivotal game for them as far as top RPI, top 50 RPI win. There's nobody else on their schedule pretty much remaining the remainder of the year that, that's going to give them the opportunity to have as quality as win that they were going to have against Stanford. And the things that concerned me most out of that game against Stanford, they didn't rebound the ball. They didn't even compete to rebound the ball against Stanford. Stanford missed so many second-chance opportunities that the score could have been much, much bigger than it actually was. Um, Hamilton's struggling right now. He's hit the freshman wall. He's not making shots. Uh, Ryan Boatwright is trying to, trying to do everything he can, but in doing so, I think he's trying to do too much. And he's just now getting back to the point where he's a little bit healthier. He's still got a little bit of a hamstring issue. The Bruce size thing is pretty much gone. Um, and, and then Ronnie Purvis is coming off the bench and actually provided a spark off the bench. And I think that's good. Omar Calhoun is rounding into form. Uh, but the inconsistency down low at the defensive end of the floor uh, and Brian getting into foul trouble, I think those are things that, that are problematic because they just don't have any depth. And they are ranked 303rd in college basketball in percentage of points off the bench. So you're going to rely an awful lot on your five starters out on the floor. And if those five starters, if even one of them isn't performing well, it puts you at a working deficit on, on the court. And I think that's what you saw against Tulsa, and I know that's what you saw against Stanford. On the other side of the ball in that particular game, Chasen Randall, who I think had 23, he averaged – uh, 24 points per game, I think, last week in two wins. They won at Cal. Then, of course, they knocked off UConn. He's got an opportunity. I didn't realize this until I looked it up this morning. He might go down as Stanford's all-time leading scorer if Stanford can get you know somewhat deep into the NCAA tournament and he continues the scoring average. Um, what, what do you make of the, the career Chase and Randall's put together? I think it's been remarkable, and I'll, t- I'll take it even one step further. Put Anthony Brown in that discussion right? Uh, with Chase and Randall. And as much as the focus in the NBA in the Bay Area is about the Splash Brothers, sure, I think you can look at Brown and Randall as being two of the elite shooters, certainly in the Pac-12. And when you start thinking about the nation and having a duo of guys that can just stroke it from the outside the way those two can, I think that you can start to make a case that this is a team that is going to be problematic, especially when Reed Travis comes back into the mix, which they're – they're anticipating that Reed might become available even this week. He's being reevaluated. Um, he was doing some stuff while I was there on campus, so it'll be interesting to see if he is indeed going to be healthy and ready to go, especially Thursday night when they've got Arizona. Uh, but Jason Randall is just one of those guys that I kind of bide his time, continue to improve. He's had some great moments over the course of his career, 
Um, but now with Powell and Houston being gone from a season ago, this was really his, his team. And this was really his time to show everybody across the country just how talented he is. And not only is he a great shooter, but he, he knows how to create his own shot off the bounce. He can catch and shoot. He has NBA range. He also is always the guy that hits the shot in the pivotal moment. Now, I'll tell you this about Anthony Brown, because I think Anthony Brown gets lost because so many people focus on Randall. Anthony Brown was the guy that was defending Ryan Boatwright the entire game. Right. Anthony Brown is, is a tall, big guard. You would think, looking on paper, you go, oh, this is going to be great. Two Wooden Award candidates. Randall defending Boatwright, Boatwright defending Randall. This is going to be a great matchup. But it's never been that way because Anthony Brown defends the best player on the other team every single game for Johnny Dawkins. And when they're in their man-to-man, I would anticipate that it will be Brown on Stanley Johnson on Thursday night. So you'll go from guarding Ryan Boatwright right. to guarding Stanley Johnson on Thursday night. The versatility that Anthony Brown brings is as good and as important to his team as any other player's versatility in college basketball today. Remember, today's the Eye on College Basketball podcast brought to you by Squarespace, where you can easily create your own professional website or online portfolio. Squarespace is now redesigned with the Squarespace 7 interface, including integration with Google Apps, partnership with Getty Images, 15 new templates and cover pages, and Squarespace has an amazing support team available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Everything starts at just $8 a month. It includes a free domain name if you sign up for a year, and every design automatically includes a unique mobile experience that matches the overall style of your website, so your content's going to look great on every device every time. To start a free trial, and it doesn't take a credit card, uh, get to building your website today. You just have to go sign up at squarespace.com. That's squarespace.com, and then use the offer code FUN to get 10% off and to show your support uh, for the Ion College Basketball Podcast at Squarespace. Start here. Go anywhere. Let's do some news and notes presented by Squarespace. Karis LeVert over the weekend suffered a foot injury that was on Saturday. Found out on Sunday. Surgery is required. He's out for the year. So Michigan is now without Nick Stauskas, Glenn Robinson, and Karis LeVert from last year's team that won the Big Ten by three games. John Beeline is terrific. Nobody disputes that. But he's going to have a hard time getting this team to the NCAA tournament, isn't he? I don't see them making it. Yeah. I don't see how they can. Right. Uh, and, and again, I, I agree with you. John Beeline is as good as a coach as you'll find in college basketball. Uh, he, he can tweak systems. He can make things work. He, he can get guys in the right position offensively. But I just don't think they have the firepower. You know, I just I don't see how moving forward in their schedule that they're going to be able to close win enough games to be in the NCAA tournament. Now, the Big Ten though overall this year is down. Now, I think you know Maryland and Wisconsin are good. Uh, I think Indiana is improving. Uh, Iowa fine, but outside of that, everybody's kind of in the same mix. And I think what's going to come back and hurt Michigan even more so than what what they're going to maybe finish with in conference is they're not a conference and some of the losses they took out of conference, I think that's what's going to come back and hurt Michigan even more. Now, SMU has received a notice of allegations from the NCAA. Two players gone for academic reasons, plus an assistant coach. Is this how Larry Brown, you think, career is going to end in another NCAA scandal? I hope not. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I really hope not, but it doesn't look good. Right. When you read it on paper, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't read well. It doesn't show well. And, um, you know, it, it's unfortunate because I think, the, obviously, the expectations at the end of last season for where SMU was going to be this year, and, that, you know, that includes Moutier, obviously, who never arrived on campus, um, they were high. They were really high. 
And, and, and certainly it would make a huge difference in the American Conference, too, if SMU would have fulfilled the promise that we saw in them. However, now you're dealing with a team that seems like it's kind of spiraling in the wrong direction, even though they continue to win games. And they're, they're still winning basketball games, sure. and they're going to continue to win basketball games. Um, but but it, certainly, it certainly doesn't give a good taste in your mouth when you think about uh, SMU and, and where they're at right now. And certainly I hope that's not going to be the case for Larry Brown. Yeah, it was just – it's sort of like – when a when a school and this is the part that always sort of gets me and I guess hindsight is what it is but like when you're a school that's historically irrelevant and you start recruiting at a high level it's gonna get the attention of the NCAA no matter what but when you're that school and you're also being coached by Larry Brown who as we all know and I, I like Larry like I like Larry Brown but he does have an NCAA pass when you combine historically irrelevant basketball program, getting high-level recruits with a guy who's had NCAA issues before, like, you're going to be under a microscope. And, and again, if the allegations are um, are able to be proven true, it'll just, you'll look back on it and go, well, why were you being so reckless in a situation you knew was going to Gonna gonna be looked at pretty closely, right? I mean, uh, again, we're, we well, got that, yeah. that's 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 exactly what I would say. I okay. mean, and when you look at, it, it, and then the the other question is why? I mean, if you're Larry Brown and you've accomplished so much in your coaching career, he has nothing to prove to anyone as far as being a coach, knowledge of the game, being a winner, all the things that would be that go down with with just a tremendous coaching career. Why would you do anything that would risk? Uh, you know, not only the school's ability to be successful, um, but even more so to your legacy uh, as a coach and for for a memory that people will look at you at. You know, I think, you know, when he went there and people look at the, qual- the quality of recruit, I think a lot of that has to do with the reputation of Larry Brown. and sure. wanting to play for a guy that knows how to be, you know, coached in the NBA, can get players to understand, like, hey, you come play for me, I can help get you to the NBA because I know exactly what it takes, look how, how long I coached in the league, look how much success I had in the league all those various things that Larry Brown could throw out there. So I think that's a big part, which was the draw for so many great kids. And I, and I think that's what all of us thought we were watching it. Then when you read the, the, the stuff that's going on with the academic side of things, then you start going, gosh, were they really trying to cut some corners here? And, they, and if you're cutting corners, you're going to get caught. And that's, and that's the problem. And, and, I, and again, I hope that these, these allegations aren't true. Uh, but if they are, it's going to leave a stain, not only on Larry Brown as a coach and his legacy, it's certainly at the college level, um, but it would also leave the same once again on SMU, and, and, and it's almost like they have to hit the reset button once again. Uh, last thing before I let you go, um, UCLA has won three straight since that five-game losing streak featuring blowout losses to Kentucky and Utah. Yeah, see, I, would, I wouldn't have done this podcast with you if it was on the five-game losing streak. <laughs> no, no, and now no. they've won three in a row. I know. Now they've won three in a row. Let's, hey, let's have a parade. Let's, let's go. Hey, uh, no, for people who don't know, you're a UCLA graduate. You're a UCLA uh, alum, former player. Um, the eleven and seven now. They got the road trip coming up to Oregon. What's the state of UCLA basketball right now? How are things? You know, I, I think that um, their overall state is one of average basketball hmm. this year. I think it's a very average basketball team, and it, it it looked like a very bad basketball team during that five that five game losing streak, but. Uh, I think that the coach Alford is just trying to put the pieces together. You know, you have three guys that left early. All three guys end up getting drafted in the first round, two of which I think that towards the end of the season, he thought were both going to come back. Adams certainly, he thought he was going to come back when Adams announced that he was coming back and then changed his mind and decided to go. Uh, and then Jonah Bolden was another one of his recruits that he thought really was going to make a huge impact for this team and then was ruled ineligible for the season. 
So essentially you're looking at, okay, fine, say Zach and Kyle, they both go pro, but you certainly thought Jordan and Jonah were going to be able to go. That's two starters right there. That changes the whole depth of this team. It's not a very deep team. Uh, it's a team at time that takes uh, off-balance shots. A lot of that falls on Coach Alford's son, Bryce. Uh, but he, but Bryce has had a good statistical season when you when you think about averaging 16 points and six assists per game. Um, but I, I just don't think that they're a great defensive team. And I think that they struggle in particular on the road because they, they rely so much on the perimeter shot. Uh, Kayvon Looney is a great freshman talent as far as a rebounder goes. His shot is getting slightly better, but he's not a great shooter. I mean, his, most of his baskets are coming offensive rebounds, putbacks, and cutting to the rim, being around the basket within four to five feet. Uh, and I think that's the, when you look at the conference overall this year in the, in the Pac-12, they're definitely behind Stanford, Utah, and Arizona. I would have said that they're behind Washington, uh, but Washington and the way they started off conference play has kind of soured the taste in my mouth. And, and I know they have a nice second-half comeback against Oregon. For UCLA to be successful, they have to win on the road. And that's where they have struggled. That's where they have not shot the ball well away from home. Uh, and they're playing an Oregon State team this this week, by the way, that's also 3-2 and two in conference play. And Coach Tinkle has done an amazing job amazing. at Oregon State. I mean, he just he has done an outstanding job in year one. They're only going to get better. In fact, I had a coach that has faced Oregon State and said this is the first time they played against Coach Tinkle, Coach Tinkle. And they said he's not just a good coach. He is a great coach. He goes, the adjustments he made during the course of the game that we were playing him, I was like, oh, my gosh. Okay, now we got to counter this. we got to counter this. He actually forces the other sideline, the other coach, to actually think and have to adjust during the course of a game. He doesn't just stay within himself. And I, and I think that's the one thing that Oregon State fans should be excited about because the talent level is only going to increase, especially when his son arrives to campus next year. That's interesting. And it is funny. Like, it's sort of a reminder, as you point out. Like, okay, so – UCLA goes to a Sweet 16 in Steve's first year. If Jordan Adams just comes back to school, like that's it. Like, and, and keep in mind, he was coming back to school, like actually announced he's coming back to school. Like how different is this team? Like, the, you know, Jordan Adams might be like a first-team All-American type guy this year in college. I mean, you could be talking about, right. you know, a top 25 team on the way to a second straight Sweet 16 and the entire um, perception of what's going on uh, in Westwood would be different based on nothing more than a, you know, 20-year-old's, you know, 50-50 coin flip decision to either uh, return to school or turn pro. So sometimes, like, guys' careers are, are, are really dictated by things that are so, uh, you know, completely out of their control. Like, do you get an extra year from a borderline, you know, first-round pick as opposed to, to lose him early? Well, and I think that that's the one thing, too. And, and I think when you look at Coach Offer, and, and I don't think he's, by the way, I don't think he, he's even remotely concerned about anything because I think he's like, you know what? This is kind of a, the hand I was dealt this year because of that situation, sure. Adams, because of Jonah Bolden. Uh, and then, then you look at the recruiting, though, that he's been able to do. And he's done a very good job actually re, reestablishing the ties in the Southern California area yep. to be able to get top talent in Southern California. I think when you look at Aaron Holiday coming in, of course, the brother of Drew Holiday, sure. Justin Holiday, both have had a great success. Um, but Aaron's going to come in. Aaron's a scorer. I don't think he's, an, I don't think he's you know, necessarily the elite of elite guards. But he's a scorer. He's got size. He knows how to play the game. He's going to come in and make an impact on the team next year. I think when you look at the year following that, Lonzo Ball, who's probably – and you, it's debatable, and, and I know you see a lot of these games, and, and I talk to a lot of the guys that, that cover and rank all those kids. But Lonzo Ball is probably the premier guard in the West region for sure in his class, and he's going to be a McDonald's All-American. 
and he's just a junior, and he's already committed to UCLA as well. So he's a local Southern California guy. Re- reestablishing those ties are key for Steve Alford to have success. He's done a good job of that. Uh, it's kind of just get through this year, and I think you're going to start to see the program start to come back up again real quick. Man, I know how busy you are in Gainesville getting ready for uh, tomorrow night's game against LSU. I really appreciate you doing this with me this morning. No problem, Gary. Anytime, both. Hey, remember. Hey, yeah. hey trip to Tullyride. Trip to Tullyride, Colorado. Hey, that's Last Dollar Saloon. Let's go. Dude, dude, I went there for people who, well, I guess people who do this, I talked about a little bit on the podcast a few weeks back. I took the family there for Christmas just sort of on a whim. Like, I I had never actually been there. My wife had been there once before because she has family uh, from Montrose. And so she'd she'd been there once, you know, when she would go to visit her grandparents and stuff, but had never actually stayed in Tullyride. It is like... For, it is like the most beautiful winter place I've ever been. It is just amazing. I loved it. Like, loved every minute of it. I want to go back every year. I, I, I basically call it my postseason anti-LA right. road trip. <laughs> right. I shut the cell phone off. I leave no, I have no laptop. I'm riding bikes. I'm hiking. My kids are, and this is like in the springtime, and they're still playing with the snow that's still in, on the side of the mountain. There's bears walking around. Right. I mean, it's, it is absolutely Gorgeous, and, and if you go out there too, next time you go out there, I'm just going to give you a hint. There's Rowdy. Rowdy is a cowboy that actually now he, he used to do uh, horseback rides in Tullyride. Now it's a little bit outside Tullyride, about like 35 minutes. Sure. Um, but Rowdy, and you can ask anybody in, in Tullyride, and they can get you in touch with this guy. He gives you the best outdoors horseback ride that you will ever go on in your life. You will see. These are the beautiful colors of Colorado, better than anyone else and anywhere else you could you could possibly see it. It's it's gorgeous. Oh wow! Like I, I will tell you, like I typically come back from vacations and I'm like, ah, you know, it was it was great, but like whatever. And but like we went there for Christmas and beyond just being relaxed for Christmas, like not feeling like we had to get up and rush to this person's house and that person's house. We were just sort of like in our little resort, hanging out. Um, it was amazing. Like I I couldn't I, you know I can't recommend it enough. Like if you just want to be able to just sort of look around. And just and and then the town's so small, like you walk everywhere you want to go, and you do get the sense everybody knows everybody else. Like it was just, um, again, a plus, two thumbs up. I've uh, I, uh, I I'm planning to go back next Christmas as well. Remember, everybody, subscribe to the Ion College Basketball Podcast on iTunes. It's a quick way to get your hands on the latest episodes. So uh, make sure to do that. And either way, uh, I will talk to you again uh, later on this week. Take care.